river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a Welcome to the Drag Quest Podcast. What's going on, Bob? Not much, buddy. Well, we've uh, been kind of slacking lately. Yeah. But we're going to put another one out. Yeah, we we uh, recorded this one. Shoot, it's been a while ago. Week, week and a half ago, we finally got time to do the little intro. And uh, we got uh, Mr. Bill McConnell out of Bozeman. Was he from Bozeman? Yep. And uh, what a stud. He has done everything. I mean, he's been in helping with movies and he's been doing primitive archery for 25 years. I think he said he started bow yeah. with primitive gear, learned from Paul Bruner, who we've had on, uh, previously. And, uh, man, he is in it. He is the real deal. He hunts with, uh, what's he call them? Sticks and rocks, literally sticks and rocks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to Carson Brown today about him and about this podcast. And, and I was like, man, like two hours went by so fast. We could have, I could have talked yeah. to this guy. It could have been a Joe Rogan six-hour podcast. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we just – well, we say that all the time, but, yeah, for real, there's there's so much into this stuff that that uh, it goes deep, man, when you get into just napping arrowheads. <laughs> you know, you could talk yeah. forever. So uh, we, tried yeah. to, we tried to brush through as much of that to kind of give you guys an overview of uh, a lot of the things he's done, even though we didn't probably do justice and pick it all up and then get into some of the hunting like we always like to. So – when I went back through and edited, I think I think you guys are really gonna like this one. He's uh he's a cool dude for sure. Yeah, he's built self bows from like forty different kinds of wood. Yeah, and he's and... he's putting together a book basically about um you know, the different different natives and what they used and you know, so you can get this book from him and try to basically replicate, you know, what they used in your area, which would be cool, super cool. I'm looking forward to that book. Actually, I had my buddy Danny called me earlier this year, and he's like, "Dude, I, I want to kill an elk. I want to make a bow. You know, out of the, you know, everything from the woods that I hunt. You know, the the bows, the arrowheads, yeah. the arrows, everything from right there. So, uh, he's actually going to put out a book, basically about doing that. It sounds like. So, stay tuned yeah. for that. Maybe we'll get him back on before he when he gets ready to publish that book. And I think he said like 1,100 pages or something. Like it's going to be full of pictures, like crazy amounts of pictures. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be super cool. I'm definitely going to have to give me a copy of that. And like I said, like 40 kinds of bow woods, and I forgot how many kinds of arrow woods and all these different kinds of rocks that that he's made points from. And uh, But at the same time, he's got knowledge. He's been to Africa and you know, met up with all these different tribes and Indians and Native American folks. And, but then he's still just a normal, like regular dude like us. Like, uh, what a cool guy. Yep, for sure. Guys are going to dig it. We'll just, uh, we'll let you guys get into it. Here we go. Bill McConnell. Yeah. You're an interesting dude. That's for sure. Uh, I don't know. It depends on who you talk to. There's some people you interview. You might not get that story from. <laughs> awesome. Are you, uh, are you from, uh, uh, Montana originally? 
No, sir. Originally from uh, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, but learned a lot of what I know from my grandfather, who was born and raised outside of Altoona, Pennsylvania. So most of my early stuff was all done in those hills in central Appalachia there. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Yeah, love it. Still still to this day, uh, can't help but flash back on all that, that early stuff, you know, catching trout with your hands and drinking from streams, all that stuff that people associate with Montana these days. I learned, you know, somewhere between Altoona and State College back in the 70s. So, yeah, really, really amazing place that people don't take enough advantage of, really. A lot of incredible hunters from back there as well fishermen and hunters so yeah i was blessed to kind of get a get a good start in a really really amazing place yeah it's it's kind of a a little piece of wild uh over on the east coast isn't it yeah for sure you know i mean it's yeah, everybody deals with the the orange army there on you know that national holiday known as the opening day of deer season over there but that's the only time you really see anybody in the woods is that, that opening of trout or the opening of deer. So all those, those later seasons, the fly fishing stuff as it moved on into later spring and those early bow seasons were definitely the best time to be in the woods because there was just no one else around. Really pristine old growth, you know, eastern forest. You just don't get enough of that stuff anymore. Yeah, that's very cool. Why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us, uh, you know, who you are and where you're from and, and uh, where you're at. Great. Uh, so my name is Bill McConnell, and I am the owner and founder of the Past Skills Wilderness School. We teach primitive wilderness survival, awareness, and tracking, and we're located in Bozeman, Montana, but we teach all over the world. Uh, truly blessed individual in the fact that my vocation and my avocation are the same thing. I do what I love and I love what I do. So my job keeps me interested in, and on top of things. And then my, my hobbies and my passions are all the same thing. So I don't know. I'm truly blessed in the fact that I figured out a way to kind of eke out a living and just work on the stuff that I love at the same time. So. And it mixes it up. We get people coming in here from unique ecosystems all around the globe. And so I'm always learning new things and trading skills. But at my heart um, and at the school's heart, we teach a lot of, of uh, primitive hunting because a lot of those masculine skills, especially within those, you know, early pioneer and indigenous communities, a lot of those masculine skills just went away. Uh, the tracking uh the sign all that kind of stuff we read about everybody loves it we all pay to see the movies and read the books but you know those hard skills are alive and well and only a few people really left on the planet so you know i got good because i just decided a long time ago that i was going to hang out with that caliber of human being and try and become that type of person so the good news is people like you are perpetuating it gathering it you know preserving what's left and Hopefully there's enough of the last generation around that still has those skills and there's enough of us from this generation that are willing to put the time and work in to make sure that our kids get it and we start getting a few more people interested in it because the numbers are getting low and the infighting is getting bad. So we got to do what we can to preserve what's left and, and introduce as many young people as we can to the outdoors and make sure that hunting and fishing are safe. But, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with you guys, that's for sure. Yeah, it seems to be a lost a lost art. Uh, 
we talk about it a lot on the podcast that woodsmanship skills uh, aren't really addressed or talked about unless you have a mentor. Um, you know, you go out into the woods and and it seems like guys are wanting a visual. They're they're not looking for sign or knowing how to read sign. Um, do you find that your clients that come to you, you said you have them coming looking for not just survival skills, but uh, to obtain primitive hunting skills. Could you, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about that? Well, sure. Let's let's just start with something that you touched on with the tracking, and 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 ultimately, it's why I'm a I'm a whitetail fanatic. Is that it's in that that accumulation of sign, that being aware of the sign, and then being able to read it and interpret it, that allows you to kind of say to yourself this is where i'm going to intercept this buck and this is how i'm going to do it this is the these are the conditions that i'm looking for and so it's all that type of information and that processing and the understanding of the ecosystem that you're hunting within and the animal that you're hunting and that's that's where the 99 percent of the information was and in my opinion still is and what's happened recently is we've become more reliant upon technology all of our skills have become rather technology-based and unfortunately up to and including even some core woodsman skills like map reading, the ability to read sign and, and interpret the landscape and all these kind of things are, are, are becoming distant memories because we have a GPS and we have global earth and all this kind of stuff that we can kind of rely upon instead of just hard skills and putting boots to the ground, moccasins in the dirt, you know, and really getting out there and understanding <laughs> what we're doing you know the ecosystem that we're hunting within the, the ethology instead of the the technology and i think that's where the indigenous communities really excelled was their understanding of their ecosystem and, and the animals that they were interacting with and so you know it set them up up for success at the distances that i like to hunt within which is close which I think, unfortunately, because of the technology issue, everything's kind of spun out of control. Our woodsmanship has gone away, and we're starting to, to take further and further shots, and all the intimacy and the understanding and, and all the lore and the love and all of the stuff that, that really got me involved is kind of becoming secondary to just Instagram pictures and talking about, you know, the fact that I wasn't even in the same area code when I let my arrow go. So all of that kind of, that's, I don't really understand much. Yeah, that's so <laughs> you know? true. And I, to talk a little bit about the the map thing, you know, I'm I'm no master woodsman, you know, like you are, but um, I never had the map programs or anything. I'm, believe it or not, you know, computers and fancy phones were not my thing until James made me start doing this darn thing with them. But I got one year before last and started using the map program. Well, I found myself. I've always had a really good sense of direction and, you know, I found myself looking at the dang thing all the time. And then when I wouldn't look at it, I'd, you know, after a while I'd stop and think and be like, well, I I just like lost that. I wasn't paying attention to where I was because I would just look at my phone. You know what I'm trying to say? Right. And absolutely. So So you just missed everything. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I was doing. And, And I did that for a whole season. You know, I hunted the whole season, early season, late season doing that and then last year i was like you know what screw that thing <laughs> i'm not yeah i am not doing it and i went in it you know it there was ups and downs like i i was in a new area in nevada it would have been nice to have the map program and all that stuff but that whole nevada hunt i never looked at 
anything. And I, and I, th- it didn't take long. It, it took me like a few days to get back on like, okay, I always was paying attention to where I was. Like, it's weird what we, we don't even realize we're missing with all, the, with, with some of this technology. You think it's not a big deal. I got the Onyx thing. I can check where my map is, but. You, you know, it, you're not it, paying you're attention right. to where you are. Like, I feel like if you are paying attention, there's always a little, you know, meter that's helping you out. And when you, when you start staring at that stuff, you just, it takes it away because you don't need it. I think you're right about that. And you, and you miss just... that, that subtle sign too. I apologize to interrupt, but you miss, you know, when you're, if you're looking at your phone, that's, you're in a little box, this little hole, right? That takes you out of the ecosystem that you're in. So you're looking at it removed. You're looking at, you're looking at this picture of what you're standing in instead of looking at what you're standing in and that subtlety of that, that intuition and all the instinct and stuff that we have to tap into to be better hunters. All that stuff goes away. It, it goes right down that hole. We pour the rest of our senses into when we're looking at that screen. Yeah. And I'm not anti them. I think they're great to have in your pack as an insurance policy because I think people actually could wander better and deeper because of the fact that they have that safety net. It's like, I can always turn this on and find my way out, but I think that it should be treated as such. Don't pull it out until you're, you're turned around and spun out and have no idea where you're at. And even then give yourself some time to try and figure it out. Yeah, exactly. It just gets addicting because you're like, you know, you got the topo, you got, you got uh, sat, you got like a, a, in between map, like oh, you're always like, oh, I wonder what's over this hill, or I wonder, you know, what's down here. Oh, is there a little <laughs> pond down there? You know, like, and then you're pretty yep, soon you find yep. yourself like, what the heck? What am I doing? So yeah, I, this year right. was definitely better putting that I, putting that aside. I definitely relate to that. Um, last elk season, uh, out hunting with my uh, buddy Joaquin, he had that um, Onyx on his phone, and we kept finding all these big elk wallows, and he kept marking them. And I thought, well. Dude, when I get that onyx, you need to send me all those waypoints because I want to remember where all these were at. Well, then I went back <laughs> after season to do some scouting, and I was able to go to all of them because I didn't mark them. I, I'd been to them. I knew where they were all at. I didn't need them to be on my phone to know where they're at. And so that yeah. was. It's like. I mean, I. Yeah. I'm sorry, James. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's like driving. I, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when you ride in a car with somebody and yeah. you're the passenger, absolutely, you, you don't. You get there, but you may you you might not be able to get back because you weren't paying attention. It's the same thing with the phone. Like Absolutely. If you are driving the car, you know, not paying attention to your phone. Like if you're driving the car, you know, you'll know how to get there next time. So anyway, not to, not to beat that to yeah. death. That's all. That's all. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, just speaking of the phone. I used to know like 200 phone numbers, and I don't know anybody's <laughs> phone number. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah, getting yeah, so absolutely. dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I have, I, you could look at it that way. It's, but I think what it'll do is that if we can, if we can free up some trivial stuff like that, creative thinkers can, can push the world forward a little bit. So there's, there's some positivity. I think dumb people will get dumber, but intelligent people will get more intelligent with more time to think about other stuff, hopefully. Well, I think, so, but as hunters, <laughs> it certainly doesn't work, yeah. you know, because I, I think, we all can see where it's headed. Eventually, it's just going to be this RFID chip or GPS tracking thing in your lighted knock, and you know you are not even going to have to recover anymore or track anymore. And it's just it's getting to the point where it's it's none of the the respect that you have for when you talk about people like Fred Bear and and you know luminaries like that. 
guys walking out with a grumly self bow, you know, and some wool and some clunky old boots in the middle of Alaska somewhere getting dumped off, you know, this, none of the Gore-Tex and techie stuff or anything like that, just canvas and leather and the sticks they had with them and just seeing country and, and having experiences that there's reasons why those stories continue to be told, why those videos continue to be watched is because they know that those people were operating at a level of understanding and, and just an in ease and a grace within those landscapes that people want to obtain. And it's got nothing to do with those trophy pictures at the end of it. Those glamour so, shots don't don't embody the reality of what what that experience, you know, the smell really, of that campfire, you know. <laughs> yeah, that experience, that. that adventure. So, going back to these uh, these skill sets, um, and, and being a guy that teaches them, uh, break down for us, uh, you know, some of these lost skill sets uh, that you find you're you're trying to embrace or teach to your clients. I mean, what are some things that, uh, you know, what are some things that you, uh, where do you start with, with a client? Interestingly, it, it starts, I don't, I, all I can really relate it to is my experience and my journey with it. And so for me, it's always been all of the survival stuff, all this primitive stuff that came in was these holes that I started to notice within my own skill set as I pushed and, and started to try and, you know, the further I started to unravel it, the, the, the deeper I realized the rabbit hole got. And so for me, it started with, um, I just, the, the, I grew up hunting with a rifle because that's what you did. And, you know, it was an awesome thing. And I got to feeding some people for a while there at the end of art school, taking care of some homeless people and stuff with some doe tags and whatnot and really saw the community aspect of it and, and really saw my skills start to expand at that time with my understanding of uh, where the animals were going to be and, and all that kind of stuff. Kind of When you have that level of feeding other people, it's amazing how everything kind of, your senses kind of heighten and that level of importance kind of moves you in ways that you wouldn't if it was self-motivated. And so after I graduated and kind of went home and hunted the next season, I went out with that that new expanded abilities and knocked a deer down pretty quick and just knew that it had lost its its sacredness somehow. And so I thought, well, I'll start hunting with a bow again because it was something that we always did as, as kids and, um, you know, as a young teenager when we were first starting to hunt with my grandfather and thought, well, that'll help and started with a compound, which he never really had. And knocked down a bunch of critters with that and thought, well, that certainly still isn't it. And said to my, my hunting buddy, I said, well, I'm going to switch to, you know, I'm not even switching back to a recurve, you know, cause we had all the old bear bows floating around at my granddad's. I said, I want to find me a longbow. Cause at that point, that was the, the deepest level of understanding that I had. That was as close as I thought I could get to, you know, the indigenous stuff. And, of all things, just so happened that my friend Roger Ray and Paul Bruner had just opened the Screen Eagle shop there outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we wandered in there thinking we were looking for longbows and walked into a wall of self-bows that literally changed my life. And so started shooting out there and really just wanted to, to hunt with these self-bows. And, of course, then it was like, well, if I'm going to hunt this self-bow, then I need a self-arrow. And then I thought, well, 
how are you going to not put on a stone point on the end of it? So to start, it was really just bow building and flint napping that, you know, bow building and aerosmithing and flint napping that caught my interest. But then I came out here to Montana on an elk hunt and packed in 12 miles with about a hundred gears, hundred pounds of gear on my back and thought, you're still not getting it. Like these hunters that lived in these forests didn't carry a hundred pounds of gear on their back to get in here to hunt for a few days. It's like, what were their shelters? What were they using for fire? How are they purifying their water? And so that just opened up a whole nother aspect to it to the point where I felt like until I could just wander in with into any ecosystem and be able to interpret the landscape, feed myself that, you know, I really didn't have much skill at all and it started a lifelong journey that I've never looked back from. My first season of primitive hunting was 25 or 26 years ago, sometime around 94, 95. I started building self bows with Paul Bruner. And, so uh, Bruner was from Pennsylvania. I didn't realize that. Uh, we no, had no, him on. He was in... Oh, cool. Originally, that's cool. Well, we had him on episode 70. And um, no. I did. I thought he was uh, from Montana or, or is that right? But wh- where's he from? He was, he, his Screaming Eagle shop, the original one was in Missoula. Oh, it was in Missoula. Okay. So he is from Montana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But his business partner, Roger, a good friend of mine, uh, opened a franchise. They opened a business together. The uh, only other one other than Missoula was in Pittsburgh. Okay. And so Bruner was hanging out at the shop. He'd come do workshops on hunting, and he was out there filming Street Smart Bucks and a bunch of those videos that they did with Stony Wolf back in the day. And so the Wenzels and all those guys and G. Fred Asbell was at Denton Hill. They were doing those big Eastern traditional bow shoots and then having people through the shop. So... And so Bruner and Ham both taught bow building workshops within six months of each other at Rogers Place. And then one of the original flint nappers that I studied under, the original flint napper that I studied under was a, a bowyer and, and archer, primitive archer named Ed Wensler, who's an incredible experimental archaeologist and flint napper out of central Pennsylvania. And he got me started with flint napping and tuned my bow building and arrow building. And from there, uh, Paul and Roger had Barney D. Simone's points in Screaming Eagle for Sale, as well as some of Eric Callahan's Flint Nap points were in there. And those two guys were a huge influence on me early, in particular Dr. Callahan, who I went and studied with for a while, shooting his roving courses and some of that traditional English archery stuff that he got into is pretty interesting. But uh, the godfather of experimental archaeology and probably the finest American Flint Napper that'll ever live. So that just that blew everything wide open. That's when I really started focusing on doing um, museum quality replications and really looking at truly replicating the tools that specific cultures used in, in those ecosystems. And so it's been too much fun now. Cause... So educate me on the flint napping. I, I uh, you know, know very little about it. You know, I've, I've picked up, you know, heads from, uh, you know, from the Native Americans that have left behind. And I've seen, you know, some guys, uh, you know, online and stuff. I've never actually met anyone that hunts with Flitnap. Um, are you weighing the heads? I know that I've found heads that sure. are tiny, heads that are yep. humongous. Someone say yep. these are spearheads. No, those are arrowheads, uh, bird heads. Um, kind of educate me on 
what you're using to go elk hunting or, or uh, whitetail hunting uh, today and what, what you believe they were using before. Yeah, so that's, those are all fantastic points, by the way. And a lot of those same questions are the same questions we all face when we decide to, to, to start to dabble uh, in some of this primitive stuff because you know how it is. You're shooting and tweaking your arrows with your recurves and your longbows, and it's it's not too long before you start looking at the the beauty and simplicity just in a in a in a stick and string. And uh, ultimately, eventually, you know, there's a lot of guys. What I noticed, especially early, was a lot of guys were building bows. Not many guys were building primitive arrows, and even fewer were making points and hunting with them. And so I got lucky because a lot, I was getting a lot of respect early because of the fact that I was just using the stuff that I was building. And so, um, I got to hang out with some people that were better <laughs> than I should have been able to hang out with at the time, just based on that. But it starts with you mirror what's legal. And usually just like anything else, you got to look at your state game laws and there's usually a minimum width requirement though. Unfortunately, we're still at only about 50% of the states allow uh stone point hunting so you got to check your your game laws but usually it's a if, if they do allow stone points there's still a minimum width requirement and a lot of what was based on were people especially initially the, the, the few people that were doing it in the mid 90s when i was first starting out they were just kind of mirroring all of the stuff that you read about from saxton pope's work with the issue points and trying to stay with that one to three ratio um, which I think is a little long, really. What I've come to find out is most of my points are one by two. You know, it's a, that, that, that shorter, that shorter, wider base cut to tip definitely penetrates better. You break less, but basically you were just mirroring. It's like, I want to have my arrows be a minimum of 10 or 12 grains per pound and my points should come in at around 125 grains. And so when I was working at Screaming Eagle, you could weigh all that out. You could spine your stuff and weigh your stuff and got hypersensitive to weighing that all out. But ultimately what has to happen is it's a component system. So you have to shoot it and it has to fly well. And so I've noticed as I've, you know, 25 years later, I, I don't spine and do all that stuff. I, I match them to the other stuff that I've built and then everything gets shot before I hunt with it to make sure that it flies well. But my points tend to be, around seven eighths of an inch wide and two inches to two and a quarter long um nice triangles and i've used side notches and corner notches and unnotched but if you just have that good point ratio they usually will end up somewhere in that 125 grain ratio five or six grains either side of it if you're right in that good you know thin and wide point type and man that stuff penetrates better than anything i've ever used so, and they were working for a long time before we, people always crack me up when they say, how do they work? It's like, well, we're here we're having a conversation. So obviously that is, they that is dead, here. right? That is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They, they, they've been feeding us for a long time. So it has to be but those bird little... points. What people call bird points were actually the arrowheads that most of the indigenous peoples were working with. They were killing elk and bison with stuff that was about the size of your thumbnail. That's what I think. In all honesty, something that was a lot smaller and lighter than any of the stuff that we've been dealing with. But I've been lucky enough to be, I've been working on a book where I've been replicating 
kind of I've been working ecosystem by ecosystem, region by region throughout the lower 48, looking at the stuff that they built traditionally. And uh, it's interesting to see because some of the on the larger end, the air, true arrowheads were the size of the stuff that we're hunting with. But most of the stuff, the bulk of the material was a lot smaller and lighter. Some of the finest arrowheads ever built were coming in at 18 or 20 grains. So you know, would you say so, that these large heads were like atlatl or spear heads then? Yep, for the most part, definitely. And 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 the good news is that, you know, you can identify those and kind of know what era they were coming from. But a lot of that material was, you know, because archery is pretty new here in the U.S., we're, we're late, you know, uh, it was around in Africa for a long time, Europe for a lot longer than here. We're, we're pretty much newcomers. You know, we were using the spear and the, the atlatl dart for a lot longer than, than, you know, people want to admit over here. Just about eight, you know, the first accepted, you know, archaeologically, academically accepted archery culture in the lower 48 kind of hovered on the border of Montana and Alberta here known as the Avonlea culture. And they dated around 1800 to 2000 years ago was the first time that we really started using bows here on this continent. So a lot of stuff was being killed with spears and darts for a lot longer than we ever shot them with bows. How far do uh, they date back in Africa? Africa, we have uh, evidence that shows they, they, they feel pretty comfortable saying 40,000. No Jeez. problem. Wow. It's probably at least 70, uh, most likely within the Kalahari Bushman culture coming out of there somewhere. We have contiguous cultural, you know, occupation of that region for 40 to 70,000 and they're figuring that it erupted out of there somewhere. We're in Europe by eight to 12,000 years ago, pretty solid what they're considering, you know, which would be still, we're still killing woolly mammoths over here with, with thrusting spears and, and, and atlatls and they're starting archery over there in Europe killing caribou at Stelmore um, with some arrows in that time period. It lurks in the Arctic over in the New World here, Greenland, and across the top of the Arctic over here, probably solidly by 3,000, um, probably closer to 8. But it doesn't make that break through the subarctic and down into the lower 48 until around 2,000 years ago. How far back do those sheep-eater Indians go back? Well, I mean, that's, that's a great question. That's, those are the Shoshone. And so that's here in Bozeman. A lot of what we deal with right here, Bozeman was kind of a, an interesting little hub because you have those intermountain cultures of, uh, those Numic languages coming up out of Mexico, including those Shoshone languages, um, coming up out of Idaho and crossing over the Great Basin and into Montana there down in the southwest corner. But we also have the Salish pushing in from the coast, coming over the mountains, resident Kootenai sitting there on the front range. And then we have the Crow and the Mandan and those guys coming in with some of the agriculture and stuff coming up the Missouri to the east. So Bozeman's this kind of nexus of all of those those cultural subtypes coming together. And uh, the last vestiges, the last holdout were, were a sheep eater. Those Shoshone bands referred to as the sheep eater up here in Yellowstone National Park. And they held out as long as they did because they embraced a lot of the old skills. They could still make, they were carving those soapstone bowls, so they still had cooking utensils, and they were still flitting and stuff sitting there on top of Obsidian Cliff right up until, heck, they ran them out. Yellowstone was already a national park, and they were having trouble. They were like these, you know, 
these these vestiges these these last vestige bands of indigenous peoples are bad for business is what they thought. So at Yellowstone it was already Yellowstone and they were still living there. So those so, guys were good. I mean it's on days like today you find that out. It's you know, fifteen below zero and you're like, man, they were doing it day after day, every day <laughs> in this stuff. Yeah, it's it's uh, so fascinating. I I can see this conversation going in so many different directions at this point. Um, but so I imagine with your research into the fl- flint napping and archery tackle uh, from these uh, Native Americans, there was also a lot of wanting to understand uh, how they survived and their skill sets. Um, and tracking is one of those things that it just is really interesting to me. I mean, any guy can go out and track something in the snow or in, in, in the mud, but the dry tracking, um, you know, yeah, I hear the old timers in my area hunting elk, you know, just going back 50 years where they could get on a, a dry track and, and follow elk for two or three days until they found the herd, um, which yep. seems almost impossible. Can we get into a little bit of your knowledge on tracking and where a guy would start uh, with sure. basic skills and how he can hone his skills? Yeah, absolutely. Those are all, that's great points. And, and the, the, I think again, I would argue tracking is the most intimidating art within the hunting skills and sign is a part of that and sign interpretation. And so I was only as with most, as, as you guys, you guys made a great point earlier about most of the time you need a mentor. And I think in general, that's still the case. And I think more importantly than what it does, your mentorship for the people that you're mentoring, it's, it's also important to the non-hunting community because as we know, people's opinion of hunters is usually based on the hunters that they know. So if they know, if they know ethical people, positive people that are out there leaving things better than they found it, respecting their, their, their ecosystems and respecting the, the animals that they hunt and they have positive opinions and vote accordingly. Whereas if they know negative people, well, then they have negative opinions. So, you know, our, we, we need to lead by example. And so yeah. I learned what I did from my grandfather, who was an incredible individual, um, old school. And, but again, a lot of that stuff is unspoken or, you know, how it is. Usually tracking doesn't even become relevant for most people until it's a recovery situation. And then they don't realize mentally they're, they're, <laughs> You know, it's tougher and because they have a vested interest in what's going on and they're emotionally attached. And so there's all this crazy stuff that kind of goes on in a recovery situation. And people are stepping on sign and we're rambling around with flashlights and crisscrossing tracks. And so a lot of that makes things more difficult because that's all more stuff that you have to read through. So, you know, the first step is is actually recognizing, hey, there's, there, you know, I got a weak spot in my game. I want to be a better tracker. And so there's some really good books out there on the topic from some great authors that do a lot more of the identification type thing. A lot of what we see in the tracking books are just track identification, and that's one aspect of it. But really what we're discussing is trailing the ability to, to, you know, pick up a string of tracks and stay on that animal in the time signature that you want to stay on it, right? Because a lot of times we're dealing with an animal we're dealing with something that's that's using the same haunts day in and day out. 
So not only do we have to read through all the other animals that are using that spot, we have to read through the animal itself from yesterday and the day before and that morning and all of that. And so usually what happens, what I see with most people is, is they go from not being able to see any tracks to seeing too many. It gets overwhelming the other way. And so what you have to do is sit down and realize that it's going to take some time. You're going to have to seek somebody out that's better than you at it. And really, in all honesty, you're going to have to put a lot of time in. And so, so we complain about only being able to read in snow or mud, but that's where all good trackers start. Right. And what you have to do is you start there and then you follow that trail where you can measure stride and pitch and straddle and toe length and all the individual like any tangible measurements, any, any, any shred of evidence that you can tangibly quantify. And then you follow that off into substrates that you, you can't see in and you just get better and better. And what takes you a couple hours the first time is less the next time until the point where, as you mentioned, we all know of stories of indigenous hunters in, in bare leaves in the Northeast being able to run deer down and stab them with a knife. You know, and those, those yeah, are pretty well documented. It it still goes on in Africa, literally. The bush. Let's kind of talk about. Um, let's direct this towards elk, um, because sure, I feel that deer often have a pretty small home range, and uh, we're big elk hunters out here. And I know for myself, I mean, there is hope. I'm bugling up an, a, a bull is very exciting, <laughs> but tracking yeah. a herd and tracking a bull <laughs> can be more just as exhilarating. Um, yeah. I just got done hunting some elk in the late season where I had the ability to hunt them in the pouring down rain and was able to do some tracking. And I find that it's a, almost a natural tendency that you, you pick a spot that you're wanting to head. Like you think I want to go check this flat or this bench for the elk. And then you get on their sign and you're following their sign. And when it starts to run out, you, you still kind of feel like a magnet. Like you want to go check that bench. Yeah, and I've, I had yep. to stop myself and go. Wait a minute, I got to find where does the sign go next, and then I, right. I, I find myself they're taking me not where I want to go, but where they are going, and and, yep. and then I wonder about my elk hunts in September when it's dry out, and I don't, I'm not able to read that because I don't have that skill set, and how I can apply that. So, you know, maybe give us some advice on 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 that. I think, well, it's twofold. You can look at that backwards and forwards. So first of all, one of the most important things that you can remember and something that you alluded to in your story, and I like listening to more of what's not being said than what's being said, is that, and, and, and here's the key, is that animals are instruments that are played by the landscape. And so you're intuitively interpreting you're reading the landscape and saying, okay, within this ecosystem, this is the, these are the, the points that these are the islands of activity, right? Because if we, if we take a look at it, it's a larger home range, but there's, there's a couple of spots where elk are going to spend more time than not. And so the question you ask yourself is, do I gravitate more towards where those spots are going to hang out are or not? So couple things is that you noticed that you were going to that bench and you found signs so first of all what you need to do is congratulate yourself on the fact that you're interpreting you're interpreting the landscape well right you got up there and you scientifically proved it out oh here's the spore here's the evidence that i was correct so now what you want to do is, is recognize that sensation that you had what is that instinctual like you said this pull that you had 
it's different for everybody. And that's what can't be taught is how you, those tracks communicate to you, how your spider senses kind of tingle when you're on that sign. Some of it smells, some of it's tracks. Hopefully it's all of it. I don't care what it is, but there's eventually, you, you know, when you're moving for me with elk, it's almost like a vapor trail. You're kind of moving. There's this half life of, of like, I don't even know what to think of it as this mist that comes off the herd that, that they leave for a while. And what, what you want to start to recognize is, I think, and something that an elk hunter that I've been working with here locally, a guy that's making the transition from longbows to selfbows and an incredible elk hunter, much better elk hunter than I am, but he's been working on some tracking with me lately. And he noticed that when I started to talk about what the importance of mechanics and how an animal moves and understanding the foot configurations when an animal's starting to slow down and look to bed. And that's when you want to slow down and start picking apart. When I see a stride at a certain distance and gap and I see the herd moving in a specific way, it lets me know that I can move a little quicker. When I start to see a mosey meander, I start to see more head movement in the tracks. I start to get onto those north slopes where I, in those dark timber where I know traditionally those are going to be bedding areas. Those are areas where the tracks are going to confirm for me some of the stuff that I already know about landscape and, and habitual movements within, you know, the critter that I'm hunting. So anytime you have that sensation, stop and take a look around and say, what evidence do I have that correlates to this? Because we talk a lot about intuition and instinct, but all that stuff has to come back under the scientific method of provability, right? If I do this and this happens every time, I'm going to start to trust it a lot more. So when I do get that sensation of, hey, take a look around, I think I'm in them. And then I look around and it's like, oh, yeah, look at this evidence. I'm going to start to trust that more and more. So I got a question for Bob. Bob's a great elk hunter in my book. <laughs> so for, for me, Bob, like I just I get this set idea of, OK, I'm going to go down this road. I'm going to take this trail. I want to check this wallow. I want to check this. And I get stuck in these ruts because I've seen elk here. I found elk there and I kind of find myself wanting to follow the script to, to go locate the elk. Do you do that? Or what, what is your method when you're out actually beating the brush, looking for the elk? Because I think I get caught in those ruts and then, and I've, because of being able to read the sign in the winter, I've been able to like get out of that rut because the sign is dragging me towards where the elk are. But I think that a lot of times I'm, I'm just running this, uh, this circle and I'm not really being proficient. Uh, what, what's your method when you get out of the truck and, and you are ready to go look for elk that morning or whatever? Oh man, that's a tough question. I guess it depends on sure what time of the season it is. You know, if, if the elk are rutting, you know, obviously I'm gonna, I'm a little more into the, them vocally sounding off, you know to help me out but if they're not like earlier in the season yeah i mean i think just exactly what he's what bill's saying it's it's uh there's there's a lot to it you know there's some 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 mojo there and i think you get i've had times where i mean there's times i'll be out in the woods and i'll just be walking you know you just cruising through and you just feel like hey you know like be at the sign or like he's talking about like you know i'll stand in one spot just because i feel like something's about to happen i guess you know like but definitely, you know, like, you, I always have a plan, but the thing I've learned about elk hunting, and I'm no great elk hunter at all, so don't say that, mm. but the thing I've learned about elk hunting where I think it's a lot different than, like, spot and stock mule deer hunting is you can't 
be committed to sticking to that plan because elk hunting is so yeah. it changes so much throughout the the season and i just feel like i've gotten better the more i let that go instead of just being like i'm going out and calling and calling and calling and calling and and that's what i'm going to do i'm just going out you know i have a plan like okay i'm going to go hunt this basin or go up this drainage or go check out this ridge but once you get up there you just kind of let it play out kind of you know yeah i think I do what you're saying. I, I, uh, going back to that story where I was tracking this particular herd of elk, I think that a lot of times I ignore my intuition and I'm trying to, to be, get better at, at following my gut. I was tracking this herd and it was great track. And then I kind of lost them where they'd hit the saddle and they kind of, you know, spread out and then they got back together and I found which way they were going and I ignored my, I ignored my, uh, oh, I need to go check this area. I was like, okay, they're headed this way. And then I got to the point where the sign was getting fresher, and I started checking the wind, and I knew the wind was wrong. And everything in me was screaming, stop, get off the track, circle around, do something different, because if you keep following the track, you are going to blow these elk out. And right as I – they all just started running because I was on them. <laughs> And the wind was wrong. At least it was instant karma. And my brain was screaming, stop tracking these elk because the wind is at your back. Stop tracking these elk. But I was like, I want to see what's around the next corner. I'm on them. I can smell them. They're... And then it was over. And I was like, why did I do that? Because it's hard to get off that track because it was so it was so good. And uh, just learning as an elk hunter. But when else are you that aware that you're aware of? That's what I love about hunting and elk in particular is where they live and how much command they have over that, that big territory. But, I mean, you spend a lot of days in your year not knowing which direction the wind's blowing at all, let alone being sensitive to the fact that it just changed direction and hit the back of your neck. And that makes it to your frontal cortex, right? That's a conscious thought. Most yeah. most of the time, we insulate ourselves so deeply with just the clothing that we wear that we couldn't feel the wind. If 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 the wind, it's going to have to be a, a, a gross wind for it to cut through the stuff that we have. And so, yeah, the wind's that's, everything. That's part right? of it. Yeah, and elk teaches you that. Like, you're, there's no way around it. And you're hustling. You're stinking. It's not like there's some magic soap or some super suit you're going to put on oh. that's going to take care and, of that. You're especially hunting- in September. And hunting in the jungle where I hunt, it's not like you can just choose to do a big loop. A lot of times you're using a grass road or an elk trail. And if you get off that grass road or off that trail, you're going to be pushing impenetrable brush. So you have to get, you have to get creative on how you circle around. You don't just get a cut left and and go this way. So it's, it's a skill set. And, um, yeah, I, I, I find it all super interesting. Uh, uh, the tracking, tracking aspect. Yeah, tracking is yeah. is fascinating. That's for sure. It, it's it's it. You can you can never master it. Yeah. That's the problem with it, right? Because you find you get then you start getting into aging. It's like I want to know how old this is, and yeah. you know, and, and and it's. I got I I was had the honor of of actually being adopted into the the call as a member of the a family member in the Kalahari Bushmen when I was over there doing some work in the Namib Desert. Those guys are next level. I mean, they speak and click. It took it took an interpreter, you know, obviously to even to get a fraction of what was being communicated. But I've, I've been blessed to work with the Apache here in the U.S., who I think are the finest North American trackers. Um, and so when you start to put 
our best up against uh, the best from other continents. I mean, there's only a couple names that come up. Other, you know, we have the Apache here. We're notorious, and uh, the Bushmen are ridiculous. And interestingly, even though there's a language barrier and a large ocean, um, when you get down to it, the the same skills are in play. Language is different. What they're calling stuff is different. But at the heart of it, the core skills and how people track together and communicate together in a tracking hunting situation. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's genetic. It's DNA. Like we haven't evolved out of it. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, as far as we think we've invented ourselves out of the garden of Eden, it's happened pretty quickly. Yeah. And so yeah. you get off of it. You can, you can re, you can reconnect with it pretty quickly. And it's amazing how if you just put a little bit of time in, how quickly you can, you know, if you're seeking it, you can tap back in and, and move within, you know, I think I'm, the form, the human form, the way it, it, it was meant to be used. I'm a, I'm definitely a student to that game and subscribe to that. And then some of the things that I've done, um, that where I've taught myself here in, in uh, on the Oregon coast is, you know, how old is this rub? Well, I'm going to get my pocket knife out and I'm going to scratch up yep. this alder tree and I'm going to yep. sit there for 20 or 30 minutes and then I'm going to leave. And when I come back through in an hour or two, I'm going to check that tree again. And then if I'm yep. in that area uh, two days later, I'm going to check it again. And I've got an idea of what alder does, uh, you know, and so then I can kind of have an idea when I come across the rub. And so it's the as same I, thing with your boot track, it's the right? same thing in your boot track when you get out of the truck. You got that gauge every day. It's like, okay, I was here three days ago. I know it's rained three times. I know dew point was this. And that's exactly what it takes. You, your incredible insight is the fact that direct, it has to start with direct observation. I know what fresh looks like. I'm going to compare fresh to this. And right. now through observation of watching fresh age, I should have a pretty good understanding as to what time frame this actually was. And, but great, what's really great. interesting, and, and people are losing that because of trail cameras now. You know? Right? Yeah. They want to they want a timestamp on a trail camera, and they're losing that. You know, they don't have they don't even question that anymore, unless they think the time's off on their camera or something like that. So well, yeah, yeah well, but direct what observation. Found, what I found really interesting about my observation on uh, elk pellets and elk rubs on the coast range, then I took my uh, hunting to Eastern Oregon. And I felt like I was lost because I would find some, you know, some elk pellets and I had, I, I, I it's dry over there. It's hot over there. Yep. I had no way of gauging and the I ran across. The brush that they're eating is different with the moisture yeah. content in the, in the forage. So yeah, yeah you're a whole different, yeah. whole new animal to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I come up, I come across these rubbed willow trees and I'm like, why is that bright green? And then I took my knife and yeah. put it on there. I was like, Oh, that's a fresh willow. Like, Oh, I, I haven't seen a willow rub before, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's like definitely home field advantage is called home field advantage for a reason. As soon as you sure. step outside your ecosystem, it all starts all over again. Home ranges change how they are acting nocturnally versus diurnally food sources, water sources. Like it's, you know, the, the strength within the herd, the you know, the ratios genetically between, you know, males and females, adults and young, like all that stuff, you know, all that naturalist stuff that we, we give no attention to. Yeah, you and know? like a, a, a big group so of elk. Important. Yeah, a big group of elk here is like, 
16 animals and then I was running into groups of 60 over there. So it was like yeah. mind, mind boggling. And, and I know a guy like Bob who hunts the coast. He hunts the Cascades. He hunts the desert. He hunts multiple states. It must be, uh, you know, a constant learning curve. Yeah, that's for sure. That's a lucky man learning. right there. That's what I hear. Those are problems to have right there. Those, those are good problems to have. If you wander around enough, something will stumble into you. That's that's always my number one plan. That's for sure. <laughs> that's a good you plan. You got me all fired up now. I just want to go track down a bull this year. Uh, no, not take anything that's but exactly that. That's exactly right. That's my plan. That's exactly right. Uh, yep. Pick so, one out and follow him. Yeah, gosh, it, it is fun. You know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I got a big family, so every year, you know, tracking elk. And I, I had a, a couple of years ago, we were hunting the desert, and I had a buddy who, uh, compound guy, he hit a bull a little low. Like, and I think he hit the, the, I think it went under, you know, under the brisket, and it hit like the, the skin on the opposite leg. Because when it would take right. a, when it would take a, a long step forward, it would open it up, and it would give it like a little, a little line of, of like drops of blood, like in a, in a line, it was very distinct. And we were right. in the desert and he thought he hit it good. And, you know, obviously we we're, we're going to track it. And that's the cool thing about the desert. You can track them pretty good. Well, yeah. and it was yeah, a good bull. Indeed. He got, he, he tracked him around. He got back with his cows and then we tracked him and we tracked him for nine miles. No joke. And, and, you know, finally, like, you know, there were, there was no blood. We were just tracking them and we'd track them for yeah. a mile and we'd be like, Hey, are we still on? Cause you know, we're in an area where there's, there's more elk cross, you know, old, new and, and, and then you'd see him like, that's him. That's him. And finally we went over like last night, like this, this bull is fine. He's just doing his thing. Right. Um, right. We get due diligence. We got to get out of here before it gets dark. Well, the next day we went around to another area and we were probably as the crow flies, like eight, eight, 10 miles away from where we left that track. And we hike up this drainage. We get a couple miles up there the next morning. We hear a bull. We slip around and get the wind right. And he just, he wasn't into anything. Well, we, we were working our way back around this drainage and I cut some tracks and I've been following the same bull track all day, the day before. And I was, and I looked down and I, and I said, I said to my buddy, Steven, I said, there's your bull track. And he looked at me and he goes, ha, nice. like, right. And I, and so nice. I walked, I walked, I followed it for about 20 yards and there was a little line with like three little drops of blood. And I, and I said, look, and he's like, you gotta be kidding me. Like I, that was that bull That's we heard awesome. the next morning and it was that far away. But, but like you said, just zoning in on that for so long, you just pick yep. up those little things and it, it's not like his track yep. looked a lot different than, any other elk track probably, but it was enough difference to It'd where it was hard like, to put into words. Yeah. It'd be like, hard to put into that's words. The bull. Right. Yeah. 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 Intuitively you're like, no, I, I can't explain to you how I know, but you tracked it out and proved it. Right. Yeah. It can't just be some wishy washy nonsense. It's like, no, that's your bull. And this is why. And I right? think another that's, thing, that's when it's incredible. Another thing that I've learned too is, is being like, Having a little confidence, and maybe that comes from, you know, obviously that probably just comes from a lot of tracking, but having confidence that you are on the right path, you know what I mean? Or, or yep. you, you yep. know, being patient and having confidence that, yeah, that that's just a, a twig turn, but I mean, that's the only, that, that's him, that's him. And you keep following and keep following. Yep. And then 
and then you will see a little spot of blood or something and then and then you know that you just have enough little affirmation along the way my nephew shot and lost a bull a few years ago that i didn't find until like three days later and and part of it was my fault because he, he thought he hit it where somewhere else like he'd hit it uh too far right. back and he said so i put you know i went in too early bumped it but i tracked i still tracked a long ways and i and i knew like we went around this big ridge following it forever i'm like i know these are his tracks but i mean i hadn't seen blood and and you know i don't know how long but i'm like these gotta right. be his tracks but you you go so far that you're like there has to be a drop of blood sure. and he went around this ridge sure. and he dropped off into this canyon and i followed him for a while down there i'm like man and i doubted myself I'm like this it can't be him this can't be him so me and my brother we circled around and we circled around and we circled around and we circled around and well the next day i went up that drainage middle of the day just checking you know where where i'd lost those track and where the tracks had went you know not where i lost them sure and sure enough he was down there and unfortunately yeah. you know, it's too late but but uh being we talk ourselves out of it yeah sometimes. i think more times than not really but and, it has to prove out right yeah. and then you went back in there it still wasn't sitting right with you you walked in there and you find them and that that kicks that's and sometimes they're not dead, let's be honest. But that that's part of the problem that I have with people taking these longer shots, right? Mm-hmm. Is if you can't be realistic with understanding how that animal was hit, how do you understand when to follow up? Yeah, that's the most You know what I mean? Thing. I don't I don't I don't get it. And then if you don't have the, the the ability to interpret sign once you're looking, the difference between blood from a liver hit versus a good long hit and things like that, or even just hair you know, knowing the difference between the length of hairs and the type of the, the the coarseness of a hair, color of a hair, difference low in the armpit versus high on the side, you know, things like that that are going to change. Hey, we better back out of here and give this bull a couple hours versus we better press him right now. Yeah. And so that's hard enough at 20 yards to know when they spin a little bit or crash off and things like that. 60, 80 and, yards out, 100 yards out. I don't know how you know when to follow and, up that animal. And I think that if you spend the time, if you're a student to this game and you're trying to, to learn behavior and you're trying to learn tracking and, uh, an understanding of how they use the landscape, not when he's wounded, not when you've made the shot, but to like, like uh, Gary Wallace, a mentor of mine, he said, uh, a new elk hunter is looking for elk. An experienced elk hunter is looking for sign. Nice. And when he first said that, I was like, what, what is he talking about? A stop sign? Uh, a traffic yeah, sign? Yeah. Like, what is he talking about? And, and, uh, I, I think that so many guys get wrapped up in tuning their bow or shooting their bow or, uh, uh, watching a, a bow hunting video or whatever. And that you can go out, even if you don't live in the elk woods, you can go out and learn from your whitetail. You can learn from the raccoons. You can learn, learn this, uh, stuff. And I'm not an expert. I'm not even saying I have so much to learn, but it's so intriguing to me to understand how they use the landscape. And then when things have gone wrong, you're, you're, you're better suit to, to, uh, figure that mystery out. And I, I, that's something I kind of want. That's the conversation I'm trying to have here is, uh, to encourage guys and gals to, to really understand their quarry and uh it's it's one track at a time i guess i mean i really get the the uh, the droppings and the rubs 
and the feeding patterns, but the actual tracks themselves can be so complex when the animals are going in different directions and breaking up and coming back together um, and turning around to go back to say hi to one of them that's fallen behind and then turn around and get back up at the front. It uh, It's very complex. Well, and I think I but that's think- the best part because you get that window. Like you said, something you alluded to was I want to know what they're doing when they feel like they're not being watched. Right. I want to right. be able to. And that's what tracking is. It's reading the newspaper. I come in and I know exactly what time they're moving through there and what they're doing, what the, the quality of the herd is, who they're trusting. If he's shuffling his feet, it's because he's got a, you know, that lead cow's got his trust, you know. So you're looking at interpreting. That's the best part about it is when it goes from just mechanics of this is the way the feet move and this is how things go to this is where the head's at. This is what they're looking at. This is, you know, this is, they're tired. They're hungry. They're, they're full. When you start looking at tracks and knowing that kind of stuff, that's when it gets really intriguing and it just snowballs. Cause it's like, you get this window and, and then it's like, okay, well, I want to know what Wolverines do when they're not being looked at. And I want to know what this is. And it just blows out, you know, yeah, because and like, like you see, you alluded to your trip to Africa now. And, and from my, uh, uh, observation those guys some of those folks over there have a skill set that is ungodly i mean you 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 see it on tv or in these shows where they bring in these uh native indigenous people that have this uh skill set where they're dry tracking an animal rather it live or wounded or just trying to figure out where the critter has gone and they are picking up it's unbelievable. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about what you learned from some of those folks in your time over there. They, they are all that you've heard, but, and they, and there's, there's a few cultures. You got some of the Bedouin groups in the lost quarter, the Marah tribe in particular are notorious in that way. Um, the Apache were notorious in that way here. The, and then you have the Bushmen of the Kalahari notorious over there. One of the major differences we see over there is that they're still being honored for those skills. They're still being paid to, to do that. So wildlife tracking and guide services and stuff like that is still a viable way for them to continue to keep those skill sets alive within their culture and put food on the table at the same time. And see, that's the difference that we see here is when I was alluding to some of the masculine skills are gone now is because the indigenous male here didn't have the opportunity to just continue doing what they always did and get paid for it. They kind of got forced into the workaday world and had to, to learn new skill sets, which meant that they weren't putting the time in on those older skill sets anymore. So, so from your, we're, we're from your observation, from your observation, sorry to interrupt, from your observation, no how much of that tracking from those uh, folks was actual reading sign and how much percentage of that was intuition from experience? I, I think it becomes a fine line, but in all honesty, most of we, we want to, we want to give the word intuition or, and that, that kind of spiritual or esoteric tone to it on a lot of stuff that literally is just hardcore physical skills that we just don't have anymore. Okay. And so we elevate it because of the fact that it's voodoo to us. But in all honesty, most of it's just physical interpretation, but they've trusted it and known it for so long and they prove it out. And they have this guild society of people, of mentors at every stage in that process from kids on out. 
And that's what's got me excited about what we're dealing with now with this resurgence, this regeneration of the skills here in in our communities here in the U.S., what my kid's going to do. What what we're supposed to do as humans is create our our ceiling, what we can max out as becomes the next generation's floor. Where my son starts is where as far as I should get to. And so, you know, that's how it was for a long time. That's how we, we from, went from middle of the food chain to top of the food chain real quick as a survival risk. Not, your, not the, a long shot at best to be sitting on top of the food and, chain. And it's so and yet, easy to rely on technology, and, and I'm guilty uh, like the rest of us. I mean, I own some trail cameras. Do I love them? No. Would I get rid of them if we outlawed them? Absolutely. Um, have, am I throwing them in the trash can? No. Um, but I have found myself, I've learned not to, to rely on them. I've learned to use them to, for in the off season to, um, you know, maybe put them on a, or put them on they a can make source. You better. They can make no, you better. They can, no, confirm, actually, they can confirm what your intuition is telling you. Yeah, you like, can't just put them up anywhere randomly. Yeah, right? you still have to figure out why they're working. Yeah, so my if buddy. You, if you're conscious buddy, about it and using them in the right way, that's they're just another tool. It's just yeah. don't trade more of your awareness for that tool. Yeah, my buddy uh, Matt Starley, he's been uh, he's been like exactly what you just said. He's like, okay, I think these black-tailed deer are using this wild rose bush as a primary food source. I'm going to put right. this camera on this and see how they interact yeah. with this bush. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. That's, that's look, good look, scientific look, research right there. Look right? at this behavior. I have, I have a, I have a hypothesis. Let's check it out. That's, yeah. that's expanding your knowledge. That's not, that's not taking awareness from you. That's creating a better hunter. Cause the yeah. next time you recognize a feed station like that, you're like, oh, the last time I saw this, I hung a camera here and had a good buck. So, boom. Yeah. You know? And, and and so, so, yeah, if you use it in that manner, you could get really good with it. I just, most of the time, it's it's the other way. But I'm going to sit back and, the and other way, you know, reap the benefits. Yeah. Exactly. You sit, you, you put this camera up and you go, okay, well, there's only does here because the camera tells me there's no bucks in the area. And then you start reading sign and you're like, uh, there's buck tracks. He walked around the camera. The does came through the main trail. The buck used the secondary trail. And without actually being, uh, looking at those observations, you could, you could trick yourself into thinking that, uh, you need to move on when you're in a, yeah, um, you're in a desert island with no deer. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that I agree. Just like Bob was alluding to, the the telephone and the GPS units um, uh, getting your mindset to forgetting your surroundings. Uh, it's easy yeah. to rely on those things, and we have to remind ourselves that as they can be good tools and can be useful, that we need to uh, really take a step back and look at the whole picture. In, indeed, and, and as we mentioned earlier, it's one thing if it's an enhancement to what you have going on. You know, you, you, but they sh- you shouldn't use it as, oh, these are the only eyes that I have in the woods. You know, all it can do is, 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 is give you a more complete picture on the movements and habits within your ecosystem. If you're, if it's correlative, if you're quantifying that information and it's putting you in a position to kind of interpret your landscape better and you're getting more sightings because of it, more close encounters because of it, you're feeding your family because of it, then that's all fantastic stuff. And, and it can keep you in the game. 
it's nice being able to look at pictures and confirm, right? It's nice saying, hey, this is where I read the land. I got this convergence of trails right here. I, and and push yourself. I think they're coming through here. I think it's this many deer based on the tracks that I'm seeing. I think they're moving at this time of day. Like push as much of, of what you can't confirm any other way to start in front of it. This is my yeah. interpretation on what I'm seeing. And then put the camera up and see if it works. What's that your stuff starts to get fantastic. What's your opinion of this? Uh, um, my, uh, my mentor, one of my mentors, Gary Wallace, who uh, is a phenomenal tracker. And I could tell story and story on on the things he's taught me in tracking, and because I just love tracking, I think it's so cool. Um, he he uh, he says that how many animals do you think are on this track? And uh, you know, I'm like, uh, whatever that number is, double it. What what do you think of that when when speaking of elk? I I well I I don't because I don't I I literally if I'm wrong I want to know. Yeah. And I do a lot of, of scientific tracking where it's like, that's part of what I get to do. Um, I've done some work with the reentry, been really lucky to, to work with the White Mountain Apache tribe and, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife with the reintroduction of the Mexican wolf down there on the res. And so a lot of what I do is spring assessments or have done is spring assessments. And a lot of that's saying this, you have this many wolves in this pack assessments on males and females adults versus subadults it's amazing when you start really looking and understanding foot configurations and aging and stuff you can pick it apart and know hey it's this many critters especially when you start working runs instead of trails where you start where it's it's species specific how they individually approach a food or a water source because mountain lions will go to the same water hole different than a mule deer buck will to use the same spot. And so as you get closer to those islands of activity, feed stations, water stations, everything kind of approaches things a little bit differently. And that's when I, what I think is unique. And you start saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to set my cameras up here. This is what's moving through here. This is the volume. I should see this much kind of activity. And if I'm not, then why is that? And then where are they? Because that's what always gets me. If I'm not seeing anything, it's not because aliens came down and lifted them up into space for the six days I get to hunt. They're there somewhere. They haven't moved. They're just, they're better than I am. And I'm not okay with that. (laughs) I I have uh, observed mountain lions as you brought them up when coming to water. Um, on the coast range through trail cameras that they will circle the small water hole. And I'm assuming that they're trying to uh, get a, a, a observation on what ungulates have been around before they uh, use the water hole. Just in case it's a meal, it's a snack and a drink at the same time. Same time. Right? Why, yeah. why, why, why not? Yeah. Why, why, why limit your possibilities? Sure. So, yeah, I, it's, uh, and so that, and that's the kind of thing where, like I said, I, Sometimes tracking is the only thing that can do it for you because it's not like you got a drone following them around. It's like most of the time you get that one little image if you're lucky with that camera. You can backtrack that animal and forward track that animal from there and get a real good understanding of this is this is Harry and this is what Harry's got going on in the spring, you know. Yeah. And as I, you start to recognize individuals and and that's when that's as hunters that's what we tend to do, right? We don't. We're not trophy hunters per se, but we put our our skill set up against animals of a specific age class because they're more difficult to kill within that range. So, you know, it's interesting when you see 
it, it, it all becomes the fact that, you know, at a certain point you, you, you exhaust it, even in today's technological age, it's like the GPS only gets you so far. Your lighted knocks can only do so much. There's only so far you can make that arrow go. At the end of the day, you had to put yourself in there, understand that ecosystem better than they did as their bedroom, put yourself in a position to be, in my instance, I like stuff at around eight yards. My, my favorite shot is somewhere between six and eight yards. So you can feel pretty good about yourself when you decide that this is the animal that I'm hunting. This is his bedroom. This is what he does when the weather system rolls in like this. This is what he does when the pressure comes in like this. I'm going to catch him at this time of day in here. I'm going to sneak into here with the wind coming in from this direction at this time. And you get in there and, you know, he has free will to do whatever he wants, but based on your interpretation of all of those things, he strolls in at the time you said he was going to, puts that shoulder forward, and everything for once goes right. The arrow flies right, finds its mark, and, you know, he's down before you even really have to put your tracking skills to use because you tracked so well prior to the shot that he's going to go down within sight. So this is a great segue. Uh, as I uh, move off the... Um you know, the use of a trail camera, which, you know, I will say that I think they are a great place. Uh, they can be a great tool to learn from and a dangerous um, uh, thing to use during season um, just because they can uh, take your attention away from what's really happening. Because what happened yesterday is not what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, but segueing away from the trail camera uh, – uh, and to what you were just saying, uh, and getting those six and eight yard shots and getting back to bow hunting, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, blending into your surroundings as far as uh, 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 camo? Yeah. Oh, man. First of all, it's one of my favorite topics, <laughs> I have to tell you. Uh, and it's, it, it, I, I think it's really where, where we can, we can be at our best right and because what i like to say is we have to be invisible to all of creation as a hunter you know you can't just be invisible to elk or deer because that red squirrel is going to send send an alarm that's going to you know let two elk herds away know exactly where you're sitting and so you get to this point where you have to move differently um when you start to recognize the interplay, that web of communication that goes on, the ability for a, a good mature white five and a half year old white tail buck has an understanding and, and, a, and a bubble of awareness of at least a half mile, right? And so, if you think about just in putting that in perspective of them being aware, that's beyond any of their ability to see or or smell, really, just based on hearing and sonar and their ability to interpret the, the baseline of, of sound and motion within the forest. They know who's moving and where everywhere around them within a half mile, which is something that we, we usually don't have an awareness within touching distance. So, you know, it's an incredible thing. And then to think about how to camouflage yourself within that visually is the easy part. <laughs> Visually is the easy part. First of all, there are some incredible patterns out there that are hypersensitive to just about any ecosystem there is now. Um, it's really when we're moving 
that camouflage becomes the issue. And in all honesty, I think the internal camouflage, the camouflaging of the times, the destinations, the clocks, that ongoing dialogue that we have mentally when we're hunting is the, the, the toughest thing to camouflage. We all know, I know anybody listening, I know the two of you understand what I'm talking about. You know when you're in the zone. You know when your awareness is perceiving things beyond your physical abilities necessarily to, of information to take in. You're, you're pushing, you, you're, you're hearing stuff that you shouldn't be able to hear. You're, you're, you're perceiving things you shouldn't be able to perceive. And still you're a visitor. But you know when you're in that, that good space, when, you're, when you know where animals are at, you know when things are showing up, you feel good about it. And at best, that's... Yeah, I'm, feel, I'm feeling lucky it. at that point. Yeah, right. And that's probably as bad as the animals get. That's low for them, right? When we think about them, in, we, we, they, we don't have to deal with mountain lions dropping 30 feet out of trees on us. You know, people talk about African lions a lot. They're one in 10 hunts. The, the American catamount, the, the mountain lion we deal with here is a 90 percenter. Nine out of 10 hunts, they're successful. So that makes your deer evolve differently, <laughs> right? That makes your elk evolve differently. And so they're tuned. They deal with hunters that that's far excel at everything beyond us hearing. We're, we're weak. You know, we make up for it in little ways, but our ability to interpret sign and then camouflage ourselves internally and externally into that environment and ambush kill something, that's one of my favorite things to do. And so usually I like a good good pattern, whatever. In my opinion, it's mentally what you feel comfortable in. You know, just like some people prefer Levi's to Wranglers or whatever it might be. It's just whatever you feel you're camouflaged in is usually the best thing. And then oh, I usually you're saying it's, hands you're saying on it's top confidence. It. Yeah, there's a confidence in your camo. And then, but I also, I, I also usually tend to enhance the camo a little bit. So I stick with my basic earth tones um, as my base layers. But then I'll usually, if I'm going to sit still, I add mud and clay and some things like that to it locally that are the regional colors that allow me to just completely blend into the environment. So it seems like it's our our face and our hands are more important to camouflage than what we're wearing per se. It seems to me that yep. my my face gets me busted when I'm lazy and I don't yep. put paint on my face or I don't always cover my face up that 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 seems to be the the downside more more than not. Well, and that's because usually you've taken care of all that other stuff though too. Right? right? At worst we're we're usually as just as hunters and outdoorsmen in general we tend to gravitate more towards dull, muted earth tones, right? So usually we're walking around in some some grays and some tans and some greens or some yep. even in, in our basic colors are usually pretty pretty earthy. So yep. usually the only thing that's going to have a reflective quality or is going to be super bright is going to be those cheekbones and the stuff that's moving. It's not just reflective qualities and the tone of the skin, but it's also the amount of movement that the head and hands are doing and people yeah. get in the habit of when they're stalking they'll move their feet really slow they'll move their legs really slow but then they hear a stick crack and they snap their head like you know a, a poltergeist just jumped out from behind them it's a, a lot of that stuff is more in my opinion movement 
based on those reflective qualities than anything else. So you got something that's already bright and then it moves a little bit. It's naturally going to stand out even in your peripheral vision a little bit better. Yeah. Movement so we is dull everything. those things out. Yeah. We dull, if we dull the face and hands a lot better because they're going to be th- that you got to lift your bow, you got to turn your head. There's little things that you have to do. So minimizing our movements and then taking care of taking the shine off those, those elements that are going to be moving the most, I think is why, but yeah, it's something about it. We're just lazy with our face, you know, it's easy to throw a jacket on. I don't like hunting face masks and stuff. So it's usually just some mud or some charcoal or something like that. And then you always forget about it and you wonder why people are looking at you sideways three hours after you're done hunting, you're walking into something, your kids, your kids play and you still got tiger stripes like three quarters of the way down your face, you know? So yeah. it doesn't work out always to the best, but. And then eye contact um, yeah, for whatever is a big reason, one. We get lazy. You know, for sure. For sure. And that's, and that's more back to that. That's anybody, you know, you stare at your dog. You, you can do that at home stare at your dog when they're asleep long enough they'll they'll wake right up and look at you so never yeah you don't want to eyeball <laughs> you don't want to eyeball your quarry and and that's why it's crazy to me too with the way some of the shot styles are especially with the modern equipment how it steals your peripheral vision you know you gotta you basically have to look at them tunnel vision in order to make that bow work through your peep sight or through your scope yeah yeah, the, so that the, distance the, having that distance be further away gives you that little bit of time. But if you if you eyeball, go ahead and stare at something at six yards and see how long it takes until they're, you know. I, I almost feel that these right guys are they they don't get it. Uh, the guys hunting with modern archery tackle, the feeling you get when you get to watch that arrow come off the bow and yep. go right to where you wanted it to go, and you watch it, you know, you hit, you see yep. the hair tough pop and that arrow go through i mean yep. that experience to be robbed of that uh because that right there is is priceless uh, i just had an image to at least two or three different thank you for speaking that way because i know i just had flashbacks to at least two or three critters of those <laughs> arrows flying just right just as you were saying it so yeah they those leave those moments leave indelible impressions on you that and that's what happened with me is once i killed something with stuff that i had made myself it was, how do you go back? You know, it was like, man, this was, it, it eats differently. There's the segment right there. I, so I would argue a different nutritional level. You know, I, I think yeah. I assimilate more of it. That, you know, so let's talk about self bows. Let's talk about self arrows. Let's talk about what you're using now and how that's evolved and uh, some of the woods that you're using for, for your arrows and, and your bows. I think the arrows get left out too often to not. Um, True. And, and, and your process. <laughs> Remember what Ishi said: bows don't kill deer, arrows do. So right. you know, as hard as hard as it is to build a really good bow, and that's not. I don't. I don't think he was saying you know that bows are easy. That's that wasn't the comment. That wasn't the wisdom in that comment. The comment is is as difficult as it is to build that bow, and get it just right. It's it's the the fine tuning of that arrow and getting it to fly so that that mass is lined up behind that cutting edge is what allows it to, to create lethal penetration. Yeah. And I think that's, that's all bow hunters. I shouldn't say all, but a high percentage of bow hunters, no matter what equipment they take to a field, even if it's modern, the arrow is so has, has so little thought that goes into it. And 
that's the, the one, that's the part that makes the connection. Like you said, that's what makes the kill. So, uh, I, I find it funny that it is so, um, so left out of the equation so often to not. Yeah, the, the arrow, and that's, that's kind of where I literally, I noticed it early within even the bowyers. There's a lot of self-bow builders, but there's not a lot of guys that hunt their own arrows off of anything. And with the limited ones that do, even then, even fewer that make their own points. And so, so are you and, into ocean this spray is or bamboo? Or... Love it. Love it. I, ocean spray. I, I fell in love with ocean spray. I got to, I was lucky enough to be, I studied and learned, I haven't hyped them enough, but I, I learned a lot of my tracking, especially the initial stages of my tracking under Tom Brown. And I got to work with Tom Brown. He was the technical advisor for the movie, The Hunted with Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio del Toro. And they, that filmed it, uh, in Portland and Silver Falls. And so I was the woodcraft specialist. I did uh, the hand drill and built the knives for that movie. A lot of the bushcraft skills, I built all the primitive traps, stuff like that for the movie. And I, I've never, I started I've never even seen that movie. I'm going to have to I was there. watch that. Legendary flick. Pretty good movie. Yeah, really good. Could have been better. Um, the final edit kind of got weird, but yeah, great movie. Tommy Lee Jones, incredible. Benicio, incredible. Um, yeah, we filmed for six months there. And so I started cutting a bunch of ocean spray right then. And cause I've been using a lot of viburnum prior to that and wild rose from out east and river cane stuff I could cut in Pennsylvania, Ohio and places like that. Um, and so we had a lot of great material, but, um, yeah. ocean spray is just, yeah, my, and, and our... it's here in Montana, the Kootenai, and I've been working with the Kootenai since that's, with the, the catalyst behind the book is my connection with the Kootenai people. And that was their primary arrow source as well. So, and I'll be honest with you, it makes it, it's a great bow wood. I've built some really nice little brush bows out of it, man. If you can get a big enough piece, it throws an arrow like nobody's business. So really good stuff all around. But well, I'm not down. Is your, is your self bow ocean spray? spray? I've made ocean spray self bows. Yeah. No, Bob, didn't yep. you make an ocean spray yep. bow? Yep, I did. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Did you send you back it or did you just leave it raw? No, it's, it's, I just left it bark backed. I, I did it a few years ago. Nice. And it's dried nice. out and so the, it's really heavy right now and I got garbage shoulders. So I actually have it over at Carson's. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta carve on it a little more and, uh, They're get it dialed in. But if I have time this year, hopefully I can. Yeah. I'll, I'll be yeah, out shooting arrows with Carson. Our buddy Carson Brown from Echo Archery, uh, he's self-bow uh, builder and teaches self-bow building classes and stuff. And he's always grabbing ocean spray. You'll see him like prepping, prepping the arrows for later. You know, like, oh, I'm going to pull this one. And it's like he's grooming the trees for, for a later harvest. Absolutely. They get better that way. I had that with blueberry a lot. High bush blueberry is the only thing I would argue that's a little better than ocean spray. Um and yeah, if you start pruning them and getting those sucker shoots working just right, you can get into a grove of arrows that'll feed you for a long time. <laughs> Carson was supposed to build. I traded him. I traded him a couple of stone points for for a use stave a couple of years ago. I'm waiting to see some photographs of him knocking something down with the, some of those points. I know he's he's a great arrow builder. I'm looking to see if he can well, put something on the ground with some of those. Well, rocks. Uh, let's call him out right here. You've been officially called out, Mister Brown. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know he's we, got a couple of nasty points, but sometimes when you trade people points, they don't want to use them. They're like, oh, I'm going to hold on to these. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully this will 
light a fire under them to at least half one of them. Well, we got to thank Carson for bringing you to us. He's the one that recommended uh, getting you on. And Carson knows uh, rule number one in traditional archery is don't fall in love with your arrows. <laughs> That's true, right? <laughs> exactly. Which is, I think, why I started shooting at six or eight yards, though, because I was. It's like it's it's one thing when it's a store bought arrow, you know, to launch it a little bit outside your comfort zone. But I yeah. practiced to distances I wouldn't shoot at, and I and I literally. I've been 25 seasons now. I've only taken two shots over 10 yards in the last 25 years. One was on a buffalo, and the other one was on a caribou. So I just, I just, I, I don't, I don't even get excited unless they're at that, that magic mark of around six to eight yards. So 20 yards, you're still, you're still figuring out how to close looking. the gap. Yeah, I'm still looking. I'm, I'm still sneaking. I, I passed on a good buck this year. I think I made a good decision on it. We had been hunting a buck we call chocolate for the last couple of years. And, uh, I had him at 19 and 20 three times in, an, in about an hour one night, but it was about five degrees outside and it was a nice little 15 mile an hour crosswind and just was like, well, you know, if you know how it is on that shot, I, I shoot, I practiced the 40. I would never even dream of shooting that far on a critter but i love i love shooting at those distances just having fun like i said callahan's roving courses got me stoked on that kind of stuff but hunting distances i'm pretty consistent at 12 or less so that buck came into about 19 chasing a doe three times over an hour hour and a half and you know if i gotta think oh i can do it if, if there's a thought before I go to put tension on the string, I just don't do it. Are you in a stand, are you stand hunting or like on the ground? Back on the ground. Um, I, 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 I'm not against tree stands. I grew up doing it for a while, loved it for a while. But when I moved to Montana, um, I started hunting these river bottom whitetails, and they're just different. Like you said, same critter, different ecosystem. I started hunting them here um, in the big river bottoms and uh just have gone to ground hunting i think this year I, I i hunt a lot of days i hunt a couple of states for whiteys every year at least i try to and uh i think i spent uh two two sits total this whole hunting season in a tree this this year was mostly ground and just just love it because it's the same thing you know you got to concentrate on your approach you got to wait for the wind you got to have a few more setups based on winds being squirrely or or this and that but man there's just something about you know sitting just sneaking in sitting on the ground having them stroll up to you at eye level at five or six yards eight yards and then having them be completely unaware of your presence and then you know having everything go right um with material that you gathered locally it just doesn't get any better it really doesn't so ocean spray, stone point, sinew wrap, yep. Uh, yep. turkey feather. Yep. Uh, I love I love, uh, I love sandhill crane though too. Okay. Some of the we we got to get some seasons out here. We're allowed two in Montana. Some of my friends hunt them in Canada. Um, there's something about those feathers. They're kind of they're sturdier than goose, but they're waterproof like goose. Nice. And I don't know what it is. I think there's just some magic in them. I've, I've killed a couple really nice critters with, with sandhills. So it's just, and sometimes the secondary feathers are half gray and half black. They're a little prettier, but I killed my first good whitey buck with sandhills. And so I think I, I have a fetish for sandhill <laughs> feathers since yeah. then. They got the mojo. But, I mean, I think it's, 
it's got it right but turkey feathers in all honesty you know it, it doesn't as far as just straight up died in the wool like if you could hunt with anything i think turkey's probably still the best yeah. Yeah. you know there's other we have you know there's there's cultural connections to pre, uh raptors and things like that but as far as literally just the engineering structural integrity of the feather the stiffness of the quill rigidity of all of it the way it holds up in the quiver the way it flies turkey feathers are really the creator's gift to bow hunters for sure what kind of arrow weight are you getting out of this uh with ocean spray it's you know because i hunt a little bit heavier i I, those all those old school guys that i learned from other than ham Ham is reasonable. He's a big boy. He's like six five or something crazy like that. Thirty one inch draw. So he shoots fifty pound bows with these thirty two inch arrows and just he's shooting telephone poles. So his penetration's not an issue. But Roger and Paul and all those guys tend to hunt pretty heavy bows, seventy pounds. You know, nothing to those guys. So um, I tend to hunt stuff in the high, the mid mid sixties usually at least the high fifties, even in the late season. And my arrow weights are with ocean spray and a good point. Some of them will push 700 grains, you know, Okay. Yeah. no problem getting 700 grains out of those arrows with a good solid ocean spray shaft and a nice point. I'm but a good flight, obviously, yeah. obviously it, it's got to get good arrow flight, but shoot the heaviest arrow you can with good arrow flight. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and are you getting, uh, pastures on deer and elk and stuff with uh well i i i don't what i call them pop cannon i'm not a a pass through to me means it's sticking in the dirt on the other side which i'm not a fan of because in in my opinion that's energy that was left in the arrow that the critter didn't absorb i like a little bit of that i like that just sticking out the other side so that i know that all the energy that that arrow had got absorbed because Basically, with this primitive stuff, you want to punch them and cut them at the same time. I want that exhale, that <sighs> as they're being hit, that way they're not taking any more oxygen in. Let's limit it to that 10 or 11 seconds that they have worth of oxygen left in the system. That's a lot less foots, feet, <laughs> foots. It's a lot less foots on the ground to have to follow in tracks. You know, yeah. every second counts at that point. So if you can, if you can hit them solid with a good heavy arrow and get them to exhale as well as get a good wound channel, that's a more likely recovery in my opinion. But it's nice to have that hole out the other side because as we know, they just leak better. And it's an opportunity for to get some leak on the the uh, the odd side that you wouldn't get on the inside sometimes. And so with the primitive stuff, having... I'll be honest with you, they just don't. The hemorrhage just isn't as as great. If you don't get that hole on the other side, as we know that the chest cavity tends to fill up until it hits the hole and starts leaking, which usually they drop by the time, you know, they're going to fill that heavy, depending upon. Which is another reason I really like hunting off the ground as well. Um, the recoveries are better. My, the I get better double long hits. I just get better penetration, all of it, um, with those ground shots as opposed to the tree shots. Do you like your heads to be wide in nature? No, or... I'm like I said, I, those ratios I gave you are pretty standard for what I hunt. My stuff usually comes in at around seven eighths wide. No, I, I, I guess I mean, I guess not how wide that is, but like the thickness of the head. No, I mean, I, it, it's got to be, it's a delicate balance, and that's why I hunt sturdier materials. 
I tend to like the middle grade stuff, the Jaspers and Chert's. Um, they're tougher to flint map, but they're structurally tougher, so they can be a little bit thinner and haft better that way. The thicker so, the point is, the thicker that 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 confluence of the shaft has to be. And so there's a delicate balance between the thickness of your point and you know that hafting area, because it if it gets too thick, it weakens the barbs on your arrow, and you can crack your shaft instead of the point breaking. So it's pretty pretty interesting and unique how you. There's that this symbiotic relationship where all of that it's a component system that has to act as one continuous unit. So point and shaft and feathers and all of it have to act as just one piece. And so that haft is critical because any little failure in the point thickness or shaft diameter or you know your glue as far as any of your your pitch or high glue and your sinew wraps too little too bulky. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's literally just right. <laughs> it can't be too much and it can't be too little. Yeah. It seems like a balance, I think that's another reason balance, why most right? people are intimidated by it. Yeah. yeah. It's gotta be solid. Like you, you have to be afraid of it. You should hold it up to your soft tissue and your soft tissue should tell you, don't poke me with that. <laughs> right. But it, it can't look bulky. There's a, well, there's, there's a, there's a deadliness and a sleekness to a well-crafted arrow that, that, you know, there's a reason why they, they carry the, the mystique that they do. There seems you know, me and Bob have been talking there's, there's about something this. To behold. Me and Bob have been talking about this today a lot. There seems to be a continuous occurrence in all these interviews, even if we're talking politics or equipment uh, or uh, ethics, that there seems to be uh, a balance, a middle ground that is always seems to be the best, like going too far one side or the other uh, can, can, uh, can, you can get you in trouble and yep. there seems to be a, a balance that is a, a yin and a yang per se. Yep. I think more people need to adopt that too. It seems unfortunately speaking of politics, just how polarized the nation is right now. I just don't like yeah. to see it. It scares me when people are so firm in, right. in their beliefs with what as new information comes to light, you should be adaptable. And, and, you know, I'd like to see more people that say, Hey, I'm, I'm a little of this and a little of that and a little of local stuff. And, you know, people need to understand that you don't have to be hard one way or hard the other way. Most of life yeah. doesn't take place out there on the edges. I think we all have so much to offer uh, each other if we can communicate better. Um, so getting back into the bows, Osage, is that the, is that the number one? You know, it is. I hate to say it anymore because it was funny when I was when I was first starting. Everybody was all about you, 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 and we were kind of coming out of that uh, that big tax all. You know, when they first they first found the cancer treatment in the bark, and there were a bunch of cuts on the old growth out west. Um, staves got expensive and tough to come by for a while, and so everybody was all hyped on you. And Osage didn't get a lot of attention because it was tougher to cut and tougher to split. And had a lot of character to it. And then all of a sudden now, you know, a couple decades later, it's kind of shifted. You got super expensive. Um, and Osage kind of got common. And um, I'm still, if I, when when it comes down to it, I like building them all. I'll bet you I'm, I'm at over 40 Bowwoods now, at least in the book I've been working on. Um, and so that's a pretty good cross-section of what we have in North America. Um, and I, I, I always love working with new stuff. There isn't a bow wood I wouldn't like to try. 
Um, but when it comes down to hunting season, because ultimately that's what I do, all of this stuff is just stuff that allows me to hunt the way that I want to hunt. And when it comes down to it, if I have my choice and I'm not hunting a museum quality, you know, specific replication that I'm trying to see how it penetrates or how it works when I'm just hunting for me and I'm just grabbing some sticks and rocks and going out there for myself. Usually it's a nice character Osage bow. I like them to twist and turn and have some movement and some struggle in them. And those bows that, that are just a little bit nastier and a little bit gnarlier and a little bit harder to build, throw a little bit harder arrow too. And they always seem to, you know, create a little bit of spark because there's some hunts where everything goes right and you read everything right and you sit in the right spot and they seem effortless. And then there's those hunts where it seems like you had to pull with every fiber of everything that you had, every shred of everything that you've been gifted and everything you could pull from. And you, you kind of, you snuck one out of there. And those are the days when that Osage bow is the difference between probably knocking that critter down and not. <laughs> so so yeah, you, you alluded to 40. Could you throw, you know, five or six? I know that you would in Osage and Hickory. Like what are the top in your mind, the top six or so that uh, you really like to work with? Um, I hate even saying it. Cause then what happens is I, I do that with rocks and then all of a sudden those rocks get more expensive or harder to come by. <laughs> <laughs> so, so every time I open my mouth, I put my foot in it. But, uh, I mean, yeah, you, you got Osage's cousin Mulberry, I think is the, is the underrated, is the underrated bowwood. Um, so, and there's a lot of it and it doesn't get a lot of attention. So I like mulberry a lot, and it's, I've killed some good critters with it, so mulberry's been good to me. Um, and I would also say, uh, let me think, I'm a big persimmons fan, though I don't recommend cutting them because the fruit's so good and the whitetails love to feed on it. So, you know, it's a, it's a catch-22 cutting down on persimmons, but I've been working a little bit of persimmons lately, and, man, that stuff's is for a white wood it's nice and dense and spits a good arrow um other than that i like the quirky stuff um i've been working on a pacific dogwood bow recently that i really like i like the stuff that vine maple that you guys got growing over in oregon throws a nasty arrow makes a great bow um so yeah i love them all what about depends on the ecosystem yep sure yeah that's so myrtle or if you're referring to some people refer to beak hazel as myrtle over there in oregon that you guys have um and that's that beak hazel is it doesn't rate very well it's a little bit softer of a wood but actually if you get a good stave of it send you back it throws a nasty arrow well the myrtle wood tree i believe and i'm i could be completely wrong but it's kind of only found where i live it's just in northern california up the oregon coast yep and yeah, you can't even break it. you can't even break a limb off the tree. It's so rubbery. Uh, yeah, they just it's, it, uh, it, it makes a good bow. <laughs> it yeah. really does. And, Usually and, sinew though. It likes sinew. Okay, so are you doing a lot of sinew back? And and what are the materials you're using? Um, I do like sinew backing, but I mean, in your ecosystem, it's a trip because you know you got ambient humidity all the time, which kind of weakens it. And then just straight downpours, which are days you don't want to, you know, have it out. But if you tiller it in that weather, you, that's the bow weight you get. Whereas what I found was is if you if you don't, if you actually tiller them in a dry climate and take them to a wet climate, your bow will lose like 10 pounds worth of weight. Yeah. So I was talking to Carson. 
And he's not a big fan of, of uh, backing Bose uh, here on the Oregon coast. He says it's, it just seems like it's not a great idea. No, and, and interestingly, that that's what messes me up when I look at it from a, a cultural perspective because, I mean, that's what was there. A lot of sinew bag bows in Northern California. It, they, it doesn't really stop until you hit um, really the, the Olympic Peninsula and North. You get into the true Northwest Coast cultures. They they quit sinew backing up there just because of how wet it was. But interestingly, that that whole Oregon, NorCal are some of the finest sinew back bows in the world. And I, I know it's just you're dealing with, I think what people fail to realize when they look at it over from an overall cultural perspective, you had a heavy salmon influence in those cultures. So it wasn't like you had the deer hunt exclusively. It was basically surf and turf situation. So if you got stuck in the shelter for, you know, a week because of a downpour, you had plenty to eat until you could take your stuff out again and then dry spell and get some deer meat knocked down. Awesome. So, well, I think, you know, you, I think we could talk about this stuff like forever. Um, I would like to, uh, we're definitely have to get you back on. Could you maybe just, uh, give us a, you know, a favorite, uh, recent hunting story and to, and maybe a concluder. Sure. Uh, let's see. Re- recent favorite hunting story. Uh, I always like to see how things work out in a new spot and with some new people. So, you know, it's it's hard. We get stuck in a rut with the, the, the people that we want to hunt with, but we always have to be open to new spots coming around and, and new people to hunt with. And so I had a couple of new buddies that had been taking some programs and building some bows and flint napping and stuff. And they, you know, showing pictures of how it always ends up and talking hunting stories and whatnot. And they had a nice, nice hunting spot out here uh, in Eastern Montana. And uh, I, I was lucky enough after a year and a half or so to kind of get the invite out. And there's just something magic. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't mind hunting private land when I can get it. It's great, but there's just something about public land, do it yourself hunts that, that make you feel real good about your ability to, you know, to use your skills in, a, in a, an area that's more difficult just based on pressure and everything else. And, and especially in a place I'd never been to before and, and didn't allow myself to cheat and start looking at Google earth and things like that to kind of get, get that preliminary stuff kind of wrap my head around it. I wanted to just throw myself into the mix and see how it went. And so we boated in, got dropped off, set up camp, got in late so didn't even have an opportunity to do a pre-scout or anything which is normally against you know if i only have a couple days of hunt usually the first couple days i just spend scouting i'm not even worried about hunting so kind of goes against my usual protocol and they were like well you know we're going to head down down river in the morning and we'll get a morning hunt in and then afterwards we can do some scouting and kind of you can kind of figure out where you want and the 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 guy that was the, the local guy that had grown up there kind of just, you know, how it is, you scratch a little something in the dirt there in the dark over the lanterns on the riverbank in the morning. It's like, well, you know, there's kind of this seam of ash that comes in here and then you got this willow thicket here. And then, you know, you got this confluence of stuff kind of coming in here and it's like, don't do this. Don't do that. Have a good time. When you hear the boat come out to the river, I was like, okay, great. Kind of wandered into this spot in the dark, pitch black, uh, just, you know, sticks and rocks and the quiver in a pack. And, and, uh, I wandered in there 
and you know he had given some directions and sure enough it's blue light and I just kind of wandered in and snapped a couple sticks and made myself this makeshift little blind just leaned up against this kind of half of a cottonwood stump with some Russian olives growing around it had a nice little look and over a confluence of a couple little trails and it's a river system where there's a lot of wash in there and so it's it's these little dunes and these little hills and and rivulets and just kind of got hunkered down and was really enjoying myself and knew it wasn't my hunt so I was like I'm here for the next five hours whether I want to be or not so I might as well enjoy myself and just relax and kind of sat there as the light came up and interested and really looking instead of just kind of going through the motions and picking stuff apart, having a great morning and just blissful, not seeing much, listening to the birds and trying to really just reach out with my senses and, and just really thankful for the fact that I was in the middle of nowhere on this whitetail hunt, sitting on the ground with just some sticks and rocks and was beginning to question my sanity. Like, you know, who the heck, you know, drives seven hours in the dark, gets dumped off in a boat from some people they, you know, don't really know very well. It says they'll be back in five hours to get you. You just kind of wander in and sit down. I was laughing, like, what are the odds of actually seeing anything, let alone killing anything, you know, and kind of talked myself out of it, kind of giggled and getting a little chilly, pulled a vest out of the pack, leaned back, kind of shutting my eyes, like, oh, you know, I don't know what time it was, but it was that, that point where it gets real cold, even though it's been light out for a minute, right before it starts to warm back up. And you're gazing time on that instead of looking at your phone or doing the dumb stuff you normally would. And and I thought, yeah, well, it's half past morning. They'll be here in a few hours. Just hunker down and see what shows up. And like a dream, heard this little bird chirp kind of half in and out of it. I look up, uh, 140 class whitey buck standing there at 16 yards facing me. Calmest I've ever been. I was like, there's no way he's coming this way he'll pick me out for sure. Cause I literally had just the, the camo I had on and a couple little, little branches I had snapped off of a cottonwood that was sitting next to me in front of me with this Russian olive behind me. So I had good back cover, but nothing in front of me. Buck looked right through me, came right down the trail in front of me, got to a point where he was like six yards out, stepped behind a little willow, came to full draw. He stepped out the other side. And I just remember thinking to myself, should I grunt him and stop him? And I thought, no, he's walking slow enough and he's close enough. I'm going to let him have it. And where it all just kind of comes into slow motion, full draw, never flinched. Uh, Watched the arrow fly in slow motion, just smashed him right in the spot. It disappeared into the hair I was looking at on his side. Kicked once, took three leaps, and the whole forest was quiet again within 30 seconds. And after a couple minutes, I had to look down and, and make sure that my arrow wasn't on my string because I, I, I thought I had, I had made it all up in my mind. I had to look down to make sure that the arrow was gone because I thought there's no way that actually just happened the way that it did. And waited an hour anyway before I even moved and uh, heard the boat coming, kind of wandered out, looked at this guy and that I barely knew. He's like, how was your morning? I was like, it was pretty good. He's like, Oh, good. He's like, we'll go down and pick our other body up. I'm like, great. He's kind of looking at me. He's like, is everything all right? And I says, yeah, I think I just killed the nicest buck of my life. You know, he's like, you know, kind of looked at me with a couple of expletives and was like, whatever. Thought I was pulling his leg, you know, sure enough, we picked that other guy back up. We rolled back up there. I said, this is what happened. This is kind of what should happen. And, uh, let those guys take point on tracking and just kind of laid back and was looking at big picture sign, looking for blood in my arrow and, 
sure enough, deer didn't go 40 yards, was piled up, and literally was one of those things where it's like, how does this happen, you know? Like, there was no pre-scouting, there was no technology, there was no any of it. It was literally walk into the woods, you, you, can't, you couldn't even see, so there was no way I was like, oh, I like this spot or that spot or this trail or that trail. It was literally a blind squirrel finding an acorn. It's like walk in, sit down based on total instinct, face the right direction, set up the right direction and have, you know, a poking young deer within six yards of you within three hours of that moment trying to just literally blew me away. So that's my, that's my best story lately. (laughs) And, and my, one of my finest accomplishments. That is so awesome. Well, we really appreciate you sharing that story and, uh, and, and your skill set with us. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you? Uh, I know we found you uh, via Carson Brown and on social media. You're on Instagram. Tell guys where they can find you, uh, wherever your avenues are. That would be great. So it's Past Skills Wilderness School. We're in Bozeman. You can always call the phone number at 406-570-0520, or you can find us at pastskills.org. Or as you've already mentioned, there's some Instagram stuff and some nice stuff up on Facebook. So let us know what you think. Get a hold of us. Uh, there's a, there's always a schedule of classes, but you can always book private workshops as well. So and your, handle on, on, with your handle on Instagram is? Uh, the, underscore, the underscore skill underscore bill. Skill bill. The underscore skill underscore bill. Yeah, you can tell a friend of mine set it up. My my native buddy set it up for me because he was tired of me not having social media. So he texted me and said, I, <laughs> I set this account up for you, so you should probably check it out. Yeah, but it's actually, actually been really fun. Actually, I've, I've really appreciated it because of people like yourself. It's amazing how many people that I found within the industry and just, just good people because of it. Been working, been working. You mentioned camo. The only thing that I really do want to mention is, uh, I've been really blessed lately to be working with Sitka. They're a Bozeman, they're, they're Bozeman local. Um, and so we got a couple projects that we've been working on recently. And so hopefully there's some good things coming out of that as well. Really excited about that relationship. So you'll hopefully be seeing me in some, some, some nice, uh, some nice whitetails and antelope and stuff coming up over the next six to eight months and some sick of gear. So and how about this, uh, at this point. And how about this book that you're working on? Is that coming out the next year or two or what is I'm, that? I'm hoping it should be out. It should be out this year. I'm down to, I'm down to the last four bows to build. So yeah, uh, I'm at a few hundred different material sources for arrows, bows and stone sources within the U S. Um, and I, I did want to mention that it's not just rocks that work. I've actually killed with some bone points and some hardwood points as well. So it's interesting just how effective, um, these indigenous materials are you study it what they used and you find out it was in the ecosystems that they were used in you find out it was probably the best tool for the job you know so i like studying what the locals did well i uh were awesome really appreciate it yeah we really appreciate you having there and we hope the listeners learned a lot from that i know i did and uh yeah let's keep this uh, woodsmanship alive and if you guys uh want questions send us some emails at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com or uh get a hold of bill um i'm sure he's more willing to help we appreciate you thank you very much once again we'd like to thank the listeners if you guys haven't uh, gone over to our patreon page check it out 
You can find it at the top of our Instagram page, TradQuest. You can also go to TradQuest.com. We have a link there. Uh, check out our Patreon page and uh, support the podcast. We'd appreciate it. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. And as always, keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. Look at this song. 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 Look at